Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 75, Island Number 10, a very odd name for a very long battle. Today's episode will jump around a bit from the planned schedule, partly because it involves a rather unusual story within the context of the Civil War. This is the story of a modern-day siege. Sieges do not occur very often within the context of modern war, and only a few true siege situations even came about during the American Civil War. Arguably, Fort Sumter was the first, but the Island Number 10 campaign represents the first time both Union and Confederate forces deliberately engaged in slow siege battle. Fort Sumter, of course, was a result of political circumstances where the besieged soldiers literally had the job of protecting their own besiegers from foreign invasion. That is, of course, not the norm. Historically speaking, siege warfare was very common and occurred frequently, much more frequently than open battle. However, as artillery became increasingly powerful and prevalent in Western battle, fixed fortifications fell increasingly into disuse. This had a number of knock-on effects in combat. The point of fixed fortifications was to make a given point difficult to, or impossible, to take without extensive time and trouble. The attacker generally had to choose between three unpalatable options. First, he could assault, frequently bloody if it succeeded at all. Note that in the heyday of the castle, defenders could often stand against small armies with a mere handful of soldiers, or even just civilians doing what they could. Now, the second option was to reduce the fortifications through bombardment. Until the gunpowder age, however, and even into the early modern period, stout fortifications might well resist bombardment for an extended time. So that left a third option, starving out the defenders. This had the advantage of preserving the attacking army's strength, but it always bought time for the defenders, either to the advantage of the troops within the fortifications, or at least the cause or nation or flag or government they fought under. Entire books, possibly entire libraries, have been written on the details of siege warfare. So while we may do an entire episode on this topic in the future, that is not this episode. No, the key point today is that sieges can become extremely protracted extremely costly in lives and treasure, and generally unpleasant all around. And also, virtually no American officer had the slightest experience with any true siege, ever. Siege warfare as a practice never became very common in the Western Hemisphere. Specifically, not since Yorktown had Americans engaged much in siege battle. The American defense of a small fort opposite Matamoros in the Mexican-American War became one brief exception, and later on in that same war, General Scott invested Veracruz. However, those affairs had been measured in mere days, not weeks or months. That pattern would not hold in the Civil War, at least not for very long. And that brings us to the events under discussion today. The first true siege of the war came about specifically because of the events we've recently discussed. That is, when Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston decided to retreat his forces back into Tennessee, he dispatched General Pierre Gustave Teuton Beauregard to pull General, and also Anglican Bishop, 
Leonidas Polk out of his fortifications at Columbus, Kentucky. But General Johnston also provided some specific orders to minimize the loss of territorial control. You see, both Confederacy and Union armies in this area had been fighting for two specific and related purposes. They wanted to advance their strategic control over the Tennessee-Kentucky front, of course. But in addition, the fighting had taken place in order to gain complete control over the Mississippi River. After all, that is why General Polk advanced to Columbus. That is also why Union General Grant occupied Paducah, and in addition, launched its attacks on Fort Henry and Donaldson. No matter how far the armies marched away from the Mississippi, Old Man River dominated strategic thinking in this theater. For the Confederacy, the river would allow them to move armies back and forth, in a region where the railroads often did not travel. To simplify things down, there were more or less three north-south rail lines west of the Atlantic region they could also use. But this still left the mighty river as the dominant mode of travel, especially given that the southern rail network already strained to serve the military needs under the pressures of war. Equally important, Union forces obviously intended to use the river as a direct conduit to split four entire Confederate states from the capital at Richmond. General Johnston knew he must prevent this at all costs. So what orders did General Johnston provide under these circumstances when he needed to prevent the Union from taking any advantage at all costs, but also to unite as much force as possible for his counterstrike? Simply put, he proposed that General Beauregard detach some forces and occupy the best defensive site down the river he could find, while most of the troops marched to rejoin Johnston. Once the Confederates pushed back the Union effort, they could hopefully stabilize the lines. In the meantime, even one solid toehold on the Mississippi would prevent the powerful Union gunboat fleet from easily pushing past and taking Memphis from the north. And the site chosen for this defense? Well, it had the unlikely name of Island Number 10. If that doesn't sound so much like a name but a number, well, yes, you're correct. At the time of being surveyed many years back, it was merely the 10th island south of the confluence of the upper Mississippi and Ohio rivers, nothing more. Of course, by 1862, it may no longer have been the 10th island. The Mississippi frequently changed course in those days and, alternatively, created or erased islands wholesale. But since no one lived there or ever gave it a snappier name, the island remained number 10 and that small oblong landmass would become the keystone of Confederate defense of the Upper Mississippi. The island itself had absolutely no importance whatsoever, except that it lay in the middle of the river. There the course bent back on itself, in a long S-shaped bend. Now this had some advantages and disadvantages for the defender. It prevented the Confederates from having a long firing line to bombard approaching ships. However, this worked both ways. The arc of the river might theoretically protect any Union force trying to bombard the island from the northern shoreline. As we will see, this proved a little bit complicated. The curvature also proved extremely important in another way, because in fact, the northern shoreline lay in eastern Missouri, now mostly controlled by Union forces. By building up some forts and redoubts on the island in the neighboring Tennessee shore, the defenders hoped to prevent any direct attack from transports, helped by the fact that 
much of the nearby shoreline was little more than a muck. The Confederates also held the nearby town of New Madrid, Missouri. Here is where the geography gets a little weird. Because of that aforementioned S-curve, New Madrid lay north and west of island number 10, even though it was also downstream, if that makes sense. Principally, the Confederate forces would rely on supply lines from tiny Tiptonville. Tiptonville lay on the eastern, or Tennessee, side of the river, south of both New Madrid and Island Number 10. There was a road that lay north from there towards Island Number 10, which is basically why they chose it. And this, together, created the strategic problem facing the Union forces, which were already swiftly marching onward in late February, under the command of General John Pope. Unfortunately, the Confederates did have a lot of artillery, but almost no soldiers to man those guns. This was, after all, meant to be a rear guard and not a final stand. Therefore, the overall command had around 5,000 soldiers, but these were scattered over a rather large area. 1,500 or so occupied New Madrid, and more took up positions in the fortifications on and around Island Number 10. But the Confederates also had to patrol the outskirts and run supplies up from Tiptonville to the south. That was not very many men for the effort. In any case, the shortage of numbers soon became a serious problem because the Union forces had quite a bit more to work with. When General Pope and his army arrived on March 3rd, they did so naturally from the Missouri side and quickly took possession of New Madrid. Although the Confederates at first dug in to defend the town, they could see no way of stopping Pope's much superior force except very temporarily. Pope, in fact, brought 18,000 men to the battlefield, and he only hesitated to attack because it would likely cost him more casualties than New Madrid was worth. But he had options, again, because of the power of American industry and the abundance of Union supply. Pope quickly ordered a powerful siege cannon to completely obliterate the Confederate lines at New Madrid. Seeing the complete futility of their exposed position, the defenders took advantage of a stormy night to flee across the river to the relative safety of the Tennessee shore. This occurred on March 12th. However, from there, they could at least blast any vessel or rowboat trying to land on the Tennessee side of the river. Now, General Pope felt annoyed that he had failed to capture anyone, but he could at least console himself with the fact that he had accomplished the first step of his campaign with virtually no loss and captured a fair amount of war material the Confederates could not take with them. But there his soldiers stopped, and Pope swiftly grew frustrated. He could not cross the river because the rebels had armed several gunboats, although entirely wooden in their case, of their own. Although these gunboats were fantastically ill-equipped by Union standards, they could still stop anyone with less firepower from steaming past the island, or trying to skip over from, you know, New Madrid so Pope couldn't get any gunboats or transports to Madrid because, well, Island Number 10 was in the way. Now, before we get into the following naval misadventures, we should understand exactly why General Pope didn't stop short of Island Number 10, disembark his soldiers on the eastern or Tennessee bank, and then flank the island that way. The reason was because the rebels had another advantage nearby, extensive marshes. Although much drier today, thanks to substantial drainage, the landscape near the Mississippi was then surrounded by enormous wetlands, 
and the rebels built trenches, batteries, and redoubts on the Tennessee side of the river. This gave them additional protection over and above the river itself. Significantly, anyone attempting to attack via land would necessarily slog through the marsh and then have to fight through those defenses while under constant bombardment. Finally, the Confederates would have plenty of time to at the least call up every spare man in the area. Even if it worked, it promised to be a grueling and bloody affair. Basically, attempting to fight through that would either take a substantially larger force than General Pope could feasibly draw upon at the moment, or would require great and pointless loss of life. Fortunately, the Navy soon dispatched the River Gunboat Fleet, freed from aiding General Grant because the Confederates had virtually abandoned Middle Tennessee. Admiral Andrew H. Foote was soon coming down the river with the fleet, but he knew he would not easily get past the island without great effort. From his perspective, it was the situation at Donaldson all over again, and he was almost certainly right on that. Actually, Foote knew the real situation to be rather worse. At Donaldson, his ships had to run a relatively small battery, although admittedly, they could only drive directly forward into the teeth of the guns. But at least there, the ships could angle their frontal armor, the strongest angle, towards the batteries. At island number 10, the ships would have to run a withering crossfire from the island and the riverbank in order to keep to the deep central channel. In fact, not content with their existing firing positions, the Confederates had constructed a floating battery, basically an anchored boat, in the river itself in order to hit any ship trying to traverse the channel. This was not going to be easy. But the worst problem lay in the unfortunate fact that a ship disabled by those defensive batteries would drift southward instead of north. At Donaldson, the current pushed damaged ships downstream, that is, northward towards Union lines and away from the fort. But here, a stricken ship would fall under grave danger of immediate capture by Confederate soldiers. If the crew could get the ship over towards New Madrid intact, then all would be well. But that was no guarantee. And for obvious reasons, Foote really, really did not want the Confederacy to get control of any of his ironclad gunboats. To make matters worse for him personally, Admiral Foote had grown cautious due to exhaustion and injury. At Fort Donelson, he sustained a nasty wound to his, well, foot. The injury itself wasn't very serious, just some splinters or shell fragments. Although painful, it would not threaten his health. But remember that this occurred before antibiotics, in fact, before the theory of microorganisms had been fully developed. Although civilians and soldiers alike knew to clean a wound, infections were so common as to be considered simply normal. Now, such maladies made no difference between officers and line soldiers either, and Foote had to endure the pain of infection as an injury refused to heal over. This likely contributed to his caution after he realized the formidable arsenal arrayed at Island Number 10. Indeed, the island and its fortifications were absolutely nothing to sneer at. The Confederates arrayed at least 50 guns and more along the approach. Unwilling to risk his vessels in another open fight, Foote resorted to more unorthodox measures. As part of the fleet build-up, he now had a number of mortar boats at his disposal. These were, as the name suggests, 
relatively small vessels with a single mortar planted atop. Foote proposed to use them to bombard the island into submission. General Pope disagreed strenuously with this notion. He wanted Foote to just run the batteries immediately, no matter the cost. Pope would then get his army across the river safely and quickly win the fight. A ship or two lost was not a very great price for that, and in his eyes, a short campaign was a happy campaign. But Foote would absolutely not agree, both for his exhaustion and illness, but also as a matter of reputation. The U.S. Navy in those days viewed the loss of a ship, even in wartime, as a rather serious problem. Foote might face severe scrutiny on the loss of a single gunboat, and he knew it. Now, this concern would, of course, quickly diminish in importance as the scope and cost of the war expanded, but it was a factor. Now, Foote did risk an initial attack on March 17th, trying to gauge the damage done to the island after an initial test of the mortar fleet. But the Confederates quickly showed they had a lot of fight in them and returned fire. This caused damage to the gunboats. Ironically, the Confederate fire killed and wounded seven men, but one of Foote's own guns burst under the strain of firing and caused 15 more casualties. Foote called off the attack. He instead settled in the last two weeks of March, dropping mortar shells by the ton on the island from the safety of the river bend. This had relatively little impact on the island itself. The issue is predominantly the amount of damage a mortar shell can do to field works instead of pre-built fortifications. Soldiers could huddle in an earthen trench in relative safety. The missiles would strike, but rarely penetrated the ground or killed any soldiers, who were generally hiding away in their bomb-proofs. Additionally, one could hardly drop enough bombs to level the island. The mortars themselves simply lacked the accuracy of rifled ship guns with an open line of fire. They could not pick out an enemy battery and destroy it beyond repair. It therefore required sustained mortar bombardments to accomplish anything. By the end of the month, Foote had barely scratched the island's defenses. This did not mean the bombardment occurred bloodlessly. On the contrary, some men died from exploding shells, and the mortar fire did damage some of the structures. It also undoubtedly made life on the island absolutely miserable. But it did not break anyone's will to fight, except perhaps the Confederate commander of the post, General John McCown. McCown grew despondent and considered the battle lost, which led to his replacement by General Mackall. But Mackall also realized that he and his soldiers could do almost nothing proactively. They would inevitably fail once anything at all went wrong. Pope and Foot between them had too many soldiers and all the artillery and the gunboats needed to win. All the Confederates were doing was trying to hold on by their fingernails. Now, of some note is that while all of this was going on, General Pope set his troops to digging out a canal linking New Madrid more directly back to the Mississippi. Basically, it uh, ran pretty much straight-ish uh, and excluded the curve of that S-bend. In intent, the canal would have been 12 miles long and 50 feet wide. It cut through earth and swamps alike. In fact, the swamp arguably proved harder to clear than dry land, for the entire way was a constant tangle of underwater trees and old roots and sandy soil just out of sight. In theory, Foote's transports 
would be able to use this to cross the marshes, avoiding island number 10. Then, hopefully, Pope could suddenly cross the river by surprise, and win the campaign in a single swift blow. The digging went on, but accomplished nothing for all the hard work. Though not a terrible idea in concept, the Mississippi simply never could be easily or quickly tamed. It does, however, provide us with a glimpse into the frustrating and time-consuming future which General Grant would face in his own attempts to bypass the even stronger fortifications at Vicksburg. In any event, as March gave way to April, Admiral Foote finally, and very grudgingly, gave in to Pope's entreaties to just get on with it already. With the mortar fleet accomplishing almost nothing, the canal going nowhere, and still unwilling to risk an all-out fight, Foote instead asked for volunteers from his captains. Captain Henry Walk of the Carondelet did so volunteer. He thought the thing could be done. And so it was, but not without some fire and panic, although very little bloodshed before the end. To prepare for the coming action, on the night of April 1st, 50 soldiers undertook an amphibious landing on the southern shore. They intended to drive away the defenders of the farthest, most exposed Confederate battery and destroy the guns. While it made for a miserable time, they chose their moment well, for a heavy storm would help conceal their movements and cover any noise. They rode as quietly as possible, probably fearing that at any moment the Confederate defenders would take up the alarm and unleash a volley of musket fire. If this happened, the Union soldiers would be entirely helpless, would get gunned down on their boats, and the entire adventure probably fail on the spot. But that did not happen. The Confederate sentries, barely able to see anything in the rain and gloom, did not discover the oncoming boats until the last moment, when a flash of lightning revealed the danger. The alarm sounded, but too late. The Federal soldiers rushed off the boats and captured the position. Here, they immediately spiked the Confederate guns and rendered them permanently useless. Furthermore, by silencing the nearest position, they provided the Carondelet a small margin of safety when it would make the run. Now for the Confederates, an early warning would be crucial to getting their soldiers up and blasting away with all of their cannon. Now they would have one less opportunity to get that warning. Additionally, Foote prepared by having every ship capable of long-range fire, including the mortar ships, open up on the floating battery instead of the island. Although they failed to destroy it, the volume of fire did destroy the anchoring chain. Now, the battery had no engines. It was a fighting platform rather than a real ship, so it drifted away downstream. Though not a permanent solution, since the rebels could eventually replace it, they could not do so instantly. And the importance of this is that the battery lay at the waterline. It would have a very flat firing arc and might be able to blast an oncoming ship for an extended period. An oncoming ship like, say, the Carondelet. And that brings us to the crucial moment. On April 4th, 1862, the Carondelet slipped away from the rest of the river fleet and headed downstream as quietly as possible. Captain Henry Walk had prepared his ship well. Among other things, his crew added thick wooden planks and other barriers to add a small margin of protection to the armor. The ship would take the journey with a coal barge tied up on one side, which might absorb a few hits if it came to that, and provide fuel if they, as hoped, reached New Madrid. 
Captain Wog also rerouted the steam away from the smokestacks in order to minimize its sound, and he chose an excellent night to move. While it would be dangerous to venture along the river in the dark, it would also minimize the threat of those mass batteries. With bated breath, the crew tried to make no noise as they cut a channel slowly downriver. Every light had been, of course, extinguished, and the pilot could barely see. But he attempted to make out the banks on either side and say the course between them. Then the smokestacks caught fire and sent bright gouts of flame skyward before the ship even passed the second battery position, the first being the one silenced a few days earlier. This, not surprisingly, alerted the entire Confederate command. It happened because when the Carondelet's crew rerouted the steam in order to dampen the sound, they inadvertently left the soot and ash in the existing smokestacks to build up. After some time, the accumulation caught a spark and went up rather in the manner of a signal flare. That pretty much removed the option of stealth. Captain Walk therefore put on as much power as possible and just went through the gauntlet. There was no way to turn around. The pilot, probably feeling very exposed in the pilot house and seeing shells explode all around him, hugged the Tennessee shore as closely as he dared and prayed his ship didn't run aground. And despite the fact that every Confederate gun battery fired off as furiously as possible, the Carondelet made it through without so much as a single life lost. In fact, most of the batteries had been placed 20 feet or more above the waterline. But since the Carondelet was hugging the shore, the batteries couldn't press their fire down far enough to hit the ship. Captain Walk soon tied up safe and sound at the dock at New Madrid. He didn't even have to worry about Confederate gunboats mounting their own desperate raid, as Federal forces had placed their cannons on shore and drove them off previously. The balance of power in the struggle had suddenly, and decisively, shifted in favor of the Union. Two days later, Foote gave approval for Captain Thompson of the Pittsburgh to repeat the feat. This he did, tying up next to the Carondelet in the early morning hours of April 7th. As dawn rose, the two gunboats quickly cleared the batteries preventing General Pope from landing on the Tennessee shoreline, and Pope himself immediately followed up by landing. Confederate General Mackall, still in charge, knew the battle was completely lost. He tried to pull his forces off the island and the forward fortifications and reunite everyone in Tiptonville. Although he knew it would not hold for long, he could at least assemble everyone and then retreat. In total, remember, he had somewhat over 5,000 men. But the Union now controlled the river. Every one of those Confederate soldiers would have to march the long way over a thin country road. Those on the island would have to desperately row or even swim across the river if they dared. Others might have to cut a path through the marshes. And in the end, it was not to be. General Pope's scouts quickly alerted him once they saw the Confederates beginning to retreat, and so he marched as fast as possible to reach Tiptonville and cut them all off. Admiral Foote, meanwhile, mounted his own attack to prevent those actually on Island Number 10 from getting away. And worse yet, the same wetlands that prevented the Union from easily flanking the defenders now made the retreat slower and more difficult. Soon enough, Pope got ahead of them, and that was that. 
nearly the entire Confederate force surrendered on the spot. By the morning of April 8th, the entire affair was concluded. The campaign ended in a single day of frantic and exhausting marching, but hardly a shot fired in anger. Excepting the soldiers captured, the entire campaign had not seen a hundred men die in both armies together, despite going on for 45 days. And even with all the ordnance fired against Island Number 10 and the desperate race to Tiptonville, almost no one died. Hardly anyone even got seriously wounded. That said, the loss of Island Number 10 represented a crushing blow to Confederate hopes, and particularly so combined with the loss at the Battle of Shiloh, also on the 7th of April. Well over 4,000 Confederates surrendered at Tiptonville, and they gave up over a 100 cannon of various types and all other military equipment. A smaller number, probably no more than a 1,000, escaped by any route available. However, it's not clear how many of these actually rejoined Confederate commands. Some certainly did, but there's a good bet that at least half quietly returned home and discarded any thoughts of war. General Pope, for his part, basked in considerable glory, and it was well-earned that day. He boasted of having captured nearly 7,000 Confederates, a pardonable exaggeration for a considerable feat of arms. He had done everything right on this campaign, and won a nearly bloodless victory in the process. In his official reports, he also expressly thanked Captain Walk, although he declined to extend such courtesy to Admiral Foote. Despite that, Foote had probably done exactly what he needed to do as well. If his wounds had drained the energy and aggressive edge of the bold commander blasting Fort Henry to pieces two months earlier, Foote had not lost his cool judgment. He thought the defenses too powerful to challenge openly, and he was possibly very right. But he could also admit that his initial plan to blast the island with mortars failed, and so looked for another path to victory. If he worried a bit too much over the possibility of losing a ship, he also made every last effort to give the Carondelet the best chance of success. And finally, he acted quickly and with conviction once the decisive moment arrived. In the aftermath, both Pope and Foote would move on with their wartime careers. Foote, at his own request, was relieved of command and sent home for badly needed rest and recovery. However, he also officially received thanks of a grateful nation via Congress. Later in the year, he obtained a promotion to Rear Admiral, the highest rank available in the Navy. Unfortunately, Admiral Andrew Hull Foote, among the best men in the Union, did not outlive the war. After healing from his injury, he intended to take up command of the entire South Atlantic Blockade Squadron. However, he suddenly died of a kidney disease in New York. He now lies interred in his native city of New Haven, Connecticut. As for General Pope, well, he received a quick promotion to Major General and a new post in the East, where he would take on the onerous duty of fending off threats to Washington, D.C. This assignment, however, would go very badly in the end although as much due to the obstinate, vicious treachery of McClellan as any fault of Pope's. That, however, is a story for another day. In the meantime, the Battle of Island No. 10 cleared the Mississippi as far as Fort Pillow, then still under construction, but intended to be another link in the chain, stopping the Union from splitting the Confederacy. The Union effort to capture that next point would turn into a hilarious free-for-all between the proud Union Navy 
and the Ellett family of Tiny Bunker Hill, Illinois. And no, I am not making that up. But we have a little ways to go before we get there, and the news is not going to get any better for the Confederacy for some time. From the Atlantic to Arizona, the Confederacy in the spring of 1862 learned the hard way that, as Gone with the Wind put it, modern war required much more than cotton, slaves, and arrogance. Now, for anyone who might be interested in visiting this particular site, I have some bad news, sort of. Island number 10 no longer exists, at least not as an island. 150 years of intervening river management and the changing course of the Mississippi has ultimately merged it back with the river bank. The S-Bend, on which New Madrid sits, is still very easily visible. If you would like to use your map program of choice, you can pretty quickly zoom in and see the rough geography, including the roads over which much of the uh, battle was fought in the end. There is, however, no sizable battlefield park or the like commemorating the site. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.